Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and welcome to this multi-part episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, as we look into the life and legend of one of the Old West's most famous legends, Wyatt Earp. We have received a number of requests to do more Old West stories, and the time has come, so what better choice than the story of Wyatt Earp? Our tales of the American West at 1001, like Tom Horn, Billy the Kid, The Legend of the Lost Dutchman Mind, and others, according to our analytics, do very well with our worldwide audience, from Australia to Taiwan and Japan to Europe and Russia. And I thought Wyatt Earp would be a good story, because it takes in a lot of famous Western towns and personalities. It's the subject of a number of films and books, and his life story never lacks for action. It also never lacks for new details and findings. There has been a tremendous amount of research done on the life of Wyatt Earp, and there continues to be, because he's one of those rare, long-lived figures who appears almost everywhere in the West for 50 years, and wherever he went, he found a way of getting his hands in the game. Thanks to that research, there's a huge likelihood that no matter how much you think you know about Wyatt Earp, something new will emerge here in these episodes. Earp, according to most researchers, was not a living legend as, say, Wild Bill Hickok or Buffalo Bill Cody or Kit Carson had been. He was known and respected by well-known men of his era, men on both sides of the law, but he would not become a household name until after his death, when the book Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal, started it all, and after that, his fame grew exponentially with every passing decade. A half a century ago, in the early days of TV, Disney was busy creating television series based on past American heroes, such as South Carolina's Revolutionary War hero, Francis Marion, also known as the Swamp Fox, and Davy Crockett, and Daniel Boone, and Wyatt Earp was one of those shows. The show began with a theme song that went like this, Wyatt Earp, Wyatt Earp, brave, courageous, and bold. Long live his fame, and long live his glory and long may his story be told. Well, all that's true. He was brave, he was courageous, and he was definitely bold. But he was no altar boy, and trouble seemed to follow him wherever he went. 
He is and was a tarnished hero, and although you'll hear all the good and bad here, we're not in the business of tearing down legends just for the sake of it, so don't expect a Wyatt Earp slam fest. You can expect history as it really happened, and let the cards fall where they may. The following story of Wyatt Earp is a story of the history of the Old West, with a special emphasis on how Wyatt Earp crossed through a significant portion of it and left his mark. The American Old West is an exciting saga, a treasured time in history, a time and place into which men and women came and were often placed in incredible circumstances. They survived or not, depending upon their ability to reshape their lives to survive the demands of the new land. They came west in wagon trains, or by coach, or by boat from other countries, and later by rail. They came for gold, or for adventure, or to escape the drudgery of the farm, or for land they could claim as their own, or to escape their past lives, but always to start a new life in a new land. It was a constant stream of new people into a largely unexplored wilderness over a period of 50 years, a brief moment in history, and it created more stories and more human drama than at any other time in American history. Wyatt Earp came to escape the farm and seek adventure. He was a seeker of fortune and became a gambler, a gunfighter, an opportunist, a brothel keeper, a tough town marshal, an investor, a saloon keeper and entrepreneur, a gold miner, a faro dealer, a boxing aficionado and occasional referee, and, in his later life, a real fan and participant in the fledgling American film industry. Living in the Los Angeles area in his later years, that being the mid to late 1920s, the 75-year-old Wyatt would visit film sets, taking a great interest in what they were doing and becoming an unpaid film consultant for early westerns. Men like William S. Hart and Tom Mix, cowboys by experience, were getting lead roles in silent western films, and they knew of Earp's reputation and welcomed him into their group. One day during lunch at the Fox Studios commissary, an eager young prop man who was interested in hearing Earp's stories about the Wild West approached him, and they hit it off, despite the fifty years that separated them, and the friendship, built over coffee and long conversations, flourished. The young prop man was a 17-year-old USC student and football player named Marion Michael Morrison, who had come to USC on a football scholarship from a little town in Iowa named Winterset which was only 70 miles or so west of Earp's boyhood home of Pella, Iowa. So they had something in common to start. Earp landed a bit part in a western and did okay with it. Mike Morrison stuck with his part-time job until halfway through his junior year, at which point he broke his collarbone while body surfing, which cost him his scholarship. So he left school, went full-time with Fox Studios, and soon found his way into acting, starting with B-Westerns. As he developed his characters, he adopted some of Earp's mannerisms and methods regarding how Earp told him a lawman should act. Eventually, Morrison, having learned the acting trade well as he moved up the ladder of B-Westerns in Hollywood, became a major screen star and is today consistently ranked in the top five of all American movie stars.
He's also ranked by most services that rank stars as the most popular screen star of the 20th century. And many of his 180 films were westerns. If you're wondering why you never heard of Michael Morrison, and the chances are you've already guessed it, it's due to the fact that early in his career he adopted the screen name John Wayne. And when it dawns on you that a young man who is to become a 20th century screen legend was able to take his cue from a man that was a 19th century western legend, the story becomes that much more enjoyable. Wyatt Barry Stapp Earp was born March 19, 1848, the fourth child of Nicholas Porter Earp and his second wife, Virginia Ann Cooksey, at 406 South Street in Monmouth, Illinois, the next stop after Hartford, Kentucky, where Wyatt's older brothers were born. Wyatt was named after his father's commanding officer in the Mexican-American War, Captain Wyatt Barry Stapp of the 2nd Company Illinois Mounted Volunteers. Wyatt had seven brothers and three sisters, and three of those brothers ended up entering the history books with him. Those three, namely Virgil, Morgan, and James. Then Ed Martha, Baxter Warren, Virginia, and Adelia, as well as an elder half-brother from his father's first marriage named Newton. In March of 1849, Nicholas Earp joined about a hundred other people in a plan to relocate to San Bernardino County, California, where he intended to buy farmland. Just 150 miles west of Monmouth on that journey, their daughter Martha became ill, so the family stopped, and Nicholas bought a new 160-acre farm seven miles northeast of Pella, Iowa. Sadly, Martha died there on May 26, 1856. That home, which was no ramshackle log home, was a good-sized two-story, featuring 16 windows on the front, eight up and eight down, and is still standing as a tourist favorite today in that area, in addition to a restored Dutch village nearby which features a working windmill that supplies bakeries in the town. Nicholas and Virginia Earp's last child, Adelia, was born June 1861 in Pella. Newton, James, and Virgil joined the Union Army on November 11th of 1861, when Wyatt was 13, which put a serious dent in farm work along with the fact that their father was busy recruiting and drilling local companies. So Wyatt and his two younger brothers, Morgan and Warren, were left in charge of tending 80 acres of corn. And no, there was no modern machinery to help. Wyatt was only 13, too young to enlist, but the endless mule and plow work must have gotten to him because he tried on several occasions to run away and join the army. Each time his father found him and brought him home. James, known as Jim Earp, was born in Hartford, Kentucky. At age 19, he enlisted in the Union Army at the outbreak of the American Civil War, joining Company F, 17th Illinois Infantry, in May of 1861. The 17th was organized and armed at Alton, Illinois. On October 31, 1861, that unit fought Missouri State Guard forces near Fredericktown, Missouri, and in that battle, over 60 men were killed or wounded including James, who was severely wounded in the shoulder and temporarily lost use of his left arm. Still game, however, and apparently not eager to return to the farm, he remained in the Army for over a year and was discharged in March 
1863 as disabled. Newton and Virgil served another two years with the 17th until the end of the war. When the Civil War ended, Wyatt's father accepted a job as wagon master on a wagon train bound for California and loaded up most of the family and all their possessions, beginning an eight-month journey west, which finally reached California in December of that year. A risky proposition, as most wagon trains did all they could to cross California's Sierra Nevadas before the first snows came in the late fall. This wagon train took longer than usual. But as to whose fault it was, history isn't clear. Diaries of the trip do indicate that wagon master Nicholas Earp was hard-headed and did not take advice from members of the group. He was prone to swearing and threatening, threatening to kill in some instances, and at one point told the members of the group that if anyone's children got out of line, he would whip them personally. And so he wasn't making friends during that seven, eight months it took to reach California. James stayed on the move after being discharged, living in Colton, California, and Newton, Kansas. And Newton was a wide-open cowboy town where gunfights, knifings, gambling, prostitution, and drunkenness ruled day and night, and where town marshals were as salty as they come. It was there that he wed a former prostitute, Nellie Bessie Ketchum, in April of 1873. Ketchum was a known name in the Southwest, mostly thanks to Tom Blackjack Ketchum, who started his own gang of train robbers, a gang which included, as you may or may not remember from our Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch stories, Will Carver and Elsie Lay, who later joined the Wild Bunch. Was Nellie Ketchum's daughter? Maybe one of you armchair historians could try it, and you'll have an article for Wild West magazine. I've placed the names of all of our 1001 Heroes Western episodes in the show notes if you want to reacquaint yourself with all the stories. For some time thereafter, James worked in a saloon in Wichita, Kansas, and then as a deputy marshal in Dodge City under Marshal Charlie Bassett, who had replaced Ed Masterson after Masterson's murder. Ed's brother, Bat, who got busy immediately avenging Ed's death, will appear later in this story. In December of 1879, James and his wife moved to Tombstone in Pima County in southern Arizona, along with his brothers, Wyatt and Virgil, and will join up with them in Tombstone later in this story. These brothers had a way of sticking together, much like the sackets of Western writer Louis L'Amour. Newton and Virgil fought several battles in the East and later followed the family to California. A quick word on Newton, who was the oldest of the Earp boys, and outlived all of them except Wyatt. After the war, and following a family relocation to California, Newton at first owned a saloon, then became a carpenter, building homes in northern California and northwestern Nevada. Then daughter Effie May and wife Jenny both died on the same day, March 29, 1898, in Paradise Hill, Nevada, also known as Paradise Valley. History is tight-lipped about how they died, another challenge for you historians in the bunch, but both went out on the same day. It had to have been a tragedy, maybe a house fire. Newton died at age 91 in Sacramento, California, on December 18, 1928, and he's buried in Sacramento's East Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery. By late summer of 1865, the brothers were putting as much distance between themselves and their father as they could. Brother Virgil found work as a driver for Phineas Banning's stagecoach line in California's Imperial Valley, 
and 16-year-old Wyatt assisted. Not long after, their brothers Jim and Morgan left the family in San Bernardino and headed for the mining towns of Montana. In the spring of 1866, Wyatt took a better-paying job and became a teamster transporting cargo for Chris Taylor. For two years, he drove cargo over the 720 miles of Wagon Road from Wilmington, California, through San Bernardino, then Las Vegas, New Mexico, to Salt Lake City, Utah Territory. In spring of 1868, Earp was hired to transport supplies needed to build the Union Pacific Railroad. In that endeavor, he learned gambling and boxing while working on the railhead in the Wyoming Territory, where he developed a reputation officiating boxing matches and refereed a bare-knuckle fight between John Shancy and Professor Mike Donovan on July 4, 1869, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, in front of 3,000 spectators. That was a big crowd for those days. Shancy was a boxer, gambler, saloon owner, and mayor of Yuma, Arizona. A tough guy in his day and time. Mike Donovan was a middleweight boxer who would eventually win a title, move to New York City with his wife and eight kids, and teach the sport of boxing, which is how he earned the moniker of professor. Mike Donovan was also the great-grandfather of Artie Donovan of National Football League fame, who became well-known for his appearances on the Johnny Carson late-night TV show, during which he would describe the humorous side of rough-and-tumble pro football as it was played in the 50s, when players looked forward to the pile-up, both to exchange greetings and insults, and try to gouge each other's eyes out while protected from the eyes of the refs. If you can catch any of those old Artie Donovan episodes on YouTube, you're in for a treat. Cheyenne, Wyoming in 1869 was a booming railroad town, having been designed as a Union Pacific Railroad destination just two years earlier. Known then as Hell on Wheels, and yes, Netflix did a good job portraying that fairly accurately. Cheyenne by 1869 was hosting about 3,000 railroad workers, and money was plentiful, so naturally entertainment and loose women followed in big numbers. There were 80 saloons in Cheyenne in 1869, and Cheyenne was where the term Red Light District was born. Apparently, the railroad workers carried red lanterns, and since there were no street lights, they carried their red lanterns with them at night. When they entered a brothel or a tent after whooping it up in a saloon, they would leave their lantern outside, reducing the chances of burning the place down by dropping the lantern inside. In the morning, when the railroad bosses came a-looking, they could find the men by following the trail of red lanterns. Cheyenne and Dodge City compete in historians' conversations for the title of the wickedest town in the West. But personally, I think there were others just as bad or worse in their heyday, like Las Vegas, New Mexico, as mentioned in our The Quick and the Dead episodes, and the wild cow towns of Ellsworth, Abilene, and Newton come to mind as well. Later, in 1869, in Cheyenne, Wyatt got tired of wild living and decided to rejoin his family, if only briefly, which had moved back to Illinois. Earp returned home and courted a 20-year-old Eurilla Sutherland, the daughter of William and Permelia Sutherland, who operated the Exchange Hotel in Lamar. They were married by Earp's father on January 10, 1870, and Wyatt bought a lot on the outskirts of town for $50, 
where he built a house in August of 1870. He wanted to settle down and have kids, but that life was never to be for him. Eurilla was about to deliver their first child when she suddenly died from typhoid fever. In November, a broken Wyatt Earp sold a lot and house for $75. He ran against his elder half-brother Newton for the office of constable and won by 137 votes to Newton's 108, but their father lost the election for justice of the peace in a very close four-way race, so politics was out for the Earps. That, added to Eurilla's untimely death, started Wyatt on a downward spiral. He had a series of legal problems. On March 14, 1871, Barton County, Missouri, found a lawsuit against him and his sureties. He was in charge of collecting license fees for Lamar, which funded local schools, and he was accused of failing to turn them in. Earp's troubles compounded from there. Wyatt, Edward Kennedy, and John Schoen were charged with stealing two horses on March 28, 1871, from William Keyes while in Indian Territory each of the value of $100. On April 6th, Deputy United States Marshal J.G. Owens arrested Wyatt for the horse theft, and Commissioner James Churchill arraigned him on April 14th and set the bail at $500. On May 15th, an indictment was issued against Earp, Kennedy, and Schoen. John Schoen's wife Anna claimed that Earp and Kennedy got her husband drunk and then threatened his life to persuade him to help. On June 5th, Kennedy was acquitted while the case remained against Earp and Schoen. Earp didn't wait for the trial, but climbed out to the roof of his jail and headed for Peoria, Illinois. Earp's name can be found in the Peoria City Directory during 1872 as a resident in the home of Jane Haspel. Although Stuart N. Lake, who became famous writing Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal, and eight, took notes of a conversation with Earp years later, in which Earp claimed that he'd been hunting buffalo during that winter of 1871-72. Peoria police raided Haspel's home in February of 1872 and arrested four women and Wyatt, Morgan Earp, and George Randall. The men were charged with keeping and being found in a house of ill fame, and they were later fined $20 plus cost. Both Earps were arrested for the same crime again on May 11th, and each was fined $44.55. The Peoria Daily National Democrat reported that Earp had been arrested once more on September 10, 1872, and this time he was aboard a floating brothel that he owned, named the Beardstown Gunboat. Gotta give him credit for the creative name for a floating brothel. A prostitute named Sally Heckel was arrested with him, and she called herself his wife. But so did a lot of women. She was likely the 16-year-old daughter of Jane Haspel. The article in the Peoria paper read, Some of the women are said to be good-looking, but all appear to be terribly depraved. John Walton, the skipper of the boat, and Wyatt Earp, now called the Peoria Bummer, were each fined $43. By calling Earp the Peoria Bummer, the newspaper was putting him in a class of contemptible loafers who impose on hard-working citizens, a beggar, and worse than tramps. They were men of poor character who were chronic lawbreakers, and Peoria constables probably considered him to be a pimp as well. The Earps had had it with the Midwest. It was time to move west. Earp, wrote Lake in that biography, arrived in Wichita, direct from his buffalo hunt in 74, 
the buffalo hunt now a synonym for his times in Peoria. It makes sense, though, that he no doubt wanted to get back to the West after all the trouble in Illinois. In early 1874, Earp and now 18-year-old Sally moved to the growing cow town of Wichita, where his brother James had gone before and was now running a brothel. Local arrest records show that Sally and James's wife and the aforementioned Nellie Bessie Ketchum operated a brothel there from early 1874 to the middle of 1876. Wyatt may well have been in charge of marketing the brothel, the word for creative marketing in those days being pimping. But historian Robert Gary L. Roberts believes that he was more likely an enforcer or a bouncer for the brothel. When the Kansas State Census was completed in June of 1875, Sally was no longer living with Wyatt, James, and Bessie. Like Etta Place of Butch Cassidy fame, she disappears into history at that point. Wichita was a railroad terminal and a destination for cattle drives from Texas. The town would fill with drunken, armed cowboys celebrating the end of their long journey when the cattle drives arrived, and lawmen were kept busy. When the cattle drives ended and the cowboys left, Earp searched for something else to do. The Wichita City Eagle reported that on October 29, 1874, Earp had helped an off-duty police officer find thieves who had stolen a man's wagon. Good men were hard to find, and Earp officially joined the Wichita Marshal's Office on April 21, 1875, after the election of Mike Meager as city marshal. Meager probably didn't know about Wyatt's recent problems with the law in Missouri, Arkansas, and Illinois, but even if he did, he probably wouldn't have cared. Few frontier lawmen had clean records. The idea was that men who'd broken the law themselves would understand best how to prevent others from doing the same. And there was an unwritten code that when you came west, you left your past behind you and started a clean slate. You typically didn't ask a stranger, so where did you come from? Or what was your last job? You were put to work and judged on your performance. In Wichita, Earp spent most of his time performing menial tasks. He functioned as the Wichita Animal Control Department, collecting dead animals from city streets. Deputy Earp enforced building codes, checking chimneys and repairing wooden slat sidewalks. He collected licensing fees, disguised as fines to gratify the town's religious element, from saloon keepers and whorehouse madams like his sister-in-law Bessie. But he wore a badge, and that was a start. And soon, Wyatt had earned his own reputation around town as a no-nonsense defender of the peace. When Texans had to be subdued, but not arrested, he cooled them down with a hard whack on the head, using the barrel of his gun, enough to knock them out or stun them, but not to kill them. That was called buffaloing, and it was a routine tactic for frontier lawmen. He also dealt faro at the Long Branch Saloon. In late 1875, the Wichita Beacon newspaper published this story. On last Wednesday, December 8th, policeman Earp found a stranger lying near a bridge in a drunken stupor. He took him to the cooler, and on searching him, found in the neighborhood of $500 on his person. He was taken next morning before his honor, the police judge, paid his fine for his fun, and went on his way rejoicing. He may congratulate himself that his lines, when he was drunk, were cast in such a pleasant place as Wichita, as there are but a few other places where that $500 bankroll would never have been heard from. 
the integrity of our police force has never been seriously questioned. It's kind of funny, newspapermen competed against each other to see who could create the loftiest hyperbole. One of the best was the headline in the Tombstone Epitaph in 1881 after the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, which we'll cover soon, regarding the death of the McClarys. Quote, Hurled to eternity in the duration of a moment. Earp was embarrassed on January 9, 1876, when he was sitting with friends in the back room of the Custom House Saloon, and his single-action revolver fell out of his holster and discharged when the hammer hit the floor. The ball passed through his coat, struck the north wall, then glanced off and passed out through the ceiling. He persuaded biographer Stuart N. Lake, years later, to omit it from his book, Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal. Earp's stint as Wichita deputy came to a sudden end on April 2, 1876, when former Marshal Bill Smith accused him of using his office to help hire his brothers as lawmen. Earp beat Smith in a fistfight and was fined $30. The local newspaper reported, It's but justice to Earp to say he has made an excellent officer. Meager won the election, but the city council voted against rehiring Earp. Time to move on. His brother James, always the investor and entrepreneur, opened a brothel in Dodge City, and Earp left Wichita to join him. It was May of 1876. A lot of things were happening around that time. The Centennial Exposition was kicking off in Philadelphia, and the grandson of Betsy Ross was there about to give an important speech about her role in the sewing of our American flag, a speech that would secure her rightful place in history, as told in our archived episode, about the life of Betsy Ross. Centennial celebrations were taking place all around America, celebrating the Declaration of Independence. Colorado had more to celebrate when they became the 38th state in the U.S. The Transcontinental Express arrived in San Francisco, California, via the first Transcontinental Railroad, 83 hours and 39 minutes after having left New York City, linking east and west. J. Rutherford B. Hayes was selected by the Republicans as presidential candidate that June. And on June 17, 1876, the Battle of the Rosebud took place when 1,500 or more Sioux and Cheyenne, led by Crazy Horse, beat back General George Crook's forces at Rosebud Creek in Montana Territory. And one week later, the Battle of the Little Bighorn where 300 men of the U.S. 7th Cavalry Regiment under Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer were wiped out by 5,000 Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, led by Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. When the news hit the newspapers, the same week of the centennial celebration, Americans demanded an investigation and revenge. The days of freedom for the American Indian were now numbered. On August 2nd of that year, Wild Bill Hickok was killed in a poker game in Deadwood, South Dakota, holding what is today called the Dead Man's Hand. Two pair, aces and eights. But this was all unknown future to Wyatt in April when he began to work in Dodge City, Kansas, serving under Marshal Larry Degger. Degger was the big man in town, literally, weighing in at 320 pounds, and he liked to throw his weight around. While in Dodge City working for Degger, Wyatt got to know Bat and Ed Masterson and Luke Short and their gang of friends who had the reputation of tough guys. 
and Dager had also wanted to be a part of that pack, but he wasn't invited. And that was where the bad blood began, between Dager and the Mastersons, and that would get worse the following year. Dagger had been a wagon master for Custer, being that he was too big for a horse. But when Dodge City Incorporated in 1868, he was in the right place at the right time and became its first marshal. After 1875, Dodge City, Kansas became a major terminal for cattle drives from Texas along the Chisholm Trail. Earp was appointed assistant marshal in Dodge City under Dagger around May of 1876, where he worked for four months, side by side with Bad Masterson. But he and Brother Morgan had had all they could stand of Dagger and decided to spend the winter of 1876-77 in the gold rush boom town of Deadwood in the Dakota Territory. They left for Deadwood on September 9, 1876, with a team of horses, but they arrived there only to find that all the land was already tied up in mining claims, so Morgan decided to return to Dodge. Wyatt saw an opportunity in Deadwood, stayed, and made a deal to buy all the wood that a local individual had cut, and then put his horses to work that winter hauling firewood into camps. He made about $5,000 in profit, and returned to Dodge City in the spring, well healed. He rejoined the Dodge City Police in spring of 1877 at the request of Mayor James Kelly. The Dodge City newspaper reported in July of 1878 that he'd been fined $1 for slapping a muscular prostitute named Frankie Bell, who heaped epithets upon the unoffending head of Mr. Earp to such an extent as to provide a slap back from Earp, according to the account. Bell spent the night in jail and was fined $20, while Earp's fine was the legal minimum. In October of 1877, outlaw Dave Rudabaugh robbed a Santa Fe Railroad construction camp and then fled south. Earp was given a temporary commission as deputy U.S. Marshal, and he left Dodge City following Rudabaugh over 400 miles through Fort Clark, Texas, where the newspaper there reported his presence on January 22nd 1878, and then moved on to Fort Griffin, Texas, in pursuit. He arrived at the frontier town on the clear fork of the Brazos River and went to Beehive Saloon, the largest in town, and the one owned by John Shancy, whom Earp had known since he was 21, back in those days at Cheyenne. One thing I really enjoy about researching the Old West was how people would always run into other people they knew. It might have been a huge territory, but not so much you could get lost in. Once you established a reputation, good or bad, it pretty much preceded you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 
Shancy told Earp that Rudabaugh had passed through town earlier in the week, but he didn't know where he was headed. Shancy suggested that Earp ask gambler Doc Holliday, who had played cards with Rudabaugh, and Holliday told Earp that Rudabaugh had headed back into Kansas. Wyatt wired this information to then-Sheriff Bat Masterson, who eventually did catch up with Rudabaugh. Dave Rudabaugh's name keeps popping up like a gunfighter whack-a-mole in our stories of the Old West, so I'm going to take just a few minutes and put his tale to rest, since he crosses paths with so many characters in this story. If you want to, position a shot glass or a cup of coffee if you're driving, and take a shot every time the name of someone we've previously covered in our 1001 stories comes up. You've heard of the Kevin Bacon movie challenge, which connects Bacon as having worked with nearly every filmmaker of the past 40 years? Make this the Dave Rudabaugh Outlaw Challenge. The outlaw career of Dave Rudabaugh began in earnest in Arkansas in the early 1870s. He was part of a band of outlaws who robbed and participated in cattle rustling along with Milton Yarberry and mysterious Dave Mather, think the quick and the dead. The three were suspected in the death of a rancher and fled the state. By some accounts, all three went to Decatur, Texas, but other accounts have Rudabaugh heading for the Black Hills of South Dakota, where he became a stagecoach robber. Sometime around 1876, Rudabaugh joined Mike Rourke and Dan Dement to form the outlaw band known as the Trio. There is a disputed story from around that time that Rudabaugh taught Doc Holliday to use a pistol while Doc taught him the finer points of playing cards. Rudabaugh's gang attempted their first train robbery on January 22, 1878, near Kinsley, Kansas. The robbery was a complete failure, and they came away empty-handed. The next day, a posse led by Bat Masterson, who was tipped off by Wyatt, including John Joshua Webb, captured Rudabaugh and fellow gang member Ed West. The remaining members of the gang were captured shortly thereafter. Rudabaugh took a deal for immunity offered by the prosecuting attorney and testified against his former gang members. Shortly following his release, Rudabaugh accepted Masterson's offer to join a group of gunfighters which included Ben Thompson, mysterious Dave Mather, and a long list of 70 other gunfighters to fight for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway in the Railroad Wars. Needless to say, nobody wanted to phase this much, and things were settled peacefully. During this time, Rudabaugh became a very close associate of John Joshua Webb, whom he had met during his earlier arrest. After the Railroad Wars, he and Webb traveled to the town of Las Vegas, New Mexico, where they became important members of the Dodge City Gang. This gang was a band of ruffians and gamblers who were dominating the political and economic life of the growing community. The leader was Hyman G. Neal, also known as Hoodoo Brown. Webb was arrested for murder in the spring of 1880. Dave Rudabaugh and another gang member attempted to break him out of jail April 5, 1880. The attempt failed, and Rudabaugh shot and killed Deputy Antonio Lino Valdez in the process. He then fled to Fort Sumner, New Mexico, where he eventually joined a gang, one of whose members was Billy the Kid. At Stinking Springs, near present-day Taiban, New Mexico, 
on December 23, 1880, a posse led by Pat Garrett captured Rudabaugh, Billy the Kid, Billy Wilson, and other members of the gang. They were taken to Las Vegas, New Mexico, but the danger of a lynch mob prompted the officers to move them to Santa Fe. In February 1881, while in court, Rudabaugh pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 99 years in prison for several counts of mail robbery. He was then found guilty for the murder of Las Vegas deputy Lino Valdez and was sentenced to death by hanging. At that point, Rudabaugh was reunited with Webb in jail. After a botched escape attempt in which fellow prisoner named Thomas Duffy died, Rudabaugh and Webb broke out. Rudabaugh fled to Arizona, where he joined the Clanton faction in their feud against the Earps. Dave may even have participated in the murder of Morgan Earp and the attempted murder of Virgil Earp, which we're getting to in Part 2, and may also have been present at the gunfight at Iron Springs in which Curly Bill Brocious was killed. So now you know why we stayed with the Rudabaugh story, because we need to link him with the band of outlaw cowboys that went against Earp in Tombstone. As the Clanton gang broke up, Rudabaugh headed down to Mexico where he worked as both a cowboy and a rustler. On February 18, 1886, Rudabaugh was involved in a gunfight with locals in Peral, Chihuahua. This was five years after Tombstone. The fight began over a card game. Dave drew his pistol and killed two men and wounded another. He left the saloon unharmed, but unable to find his horse he re-entered a few moments later, and that turned out to be his fatal mistake. He was shot several times from the shadows, and then was decapitated with a machete, and his head placed on a pole. Dave Brudabaugh was the only outlaw said to have crossed paths with Dave Mather, Bad Masterson, Pat Garrett, Wyatt Earp, Billy the Kid, Mysterious Dave Mather, Ben Thompson, and Doc Holliday. Brudabaugh was 31 years old when he was killed. His severed head was placed on a stake for almost three weeks after his death. Legend has it that a group of Mexican outlaws found new ways to defile his severed head. But heck, that's only legend. Rudabaugh went down the hard way, but he probably would have told you that beat the hell out of dying in prison. Now, back to Wyatt and Dodge City, where things are starting to heat up. By May 11, 1878, the Dodge newspapers reported that Earp had returned to Dodge City. The Times noted on May 14th that he'd been appointed assistant marshal for the salary of $75 a month, serving under Charlie Bassett. Doc Holliday also showed up in Dodge City with his common-law wife, Big Nose Kate, during that summer of 1878. And so it was that Ed Morrison and another two dozen cowboys rode into Dodge that summer and shot up the town, galloping down Front Street. They entered the Long Branch Saloon, vandalized the room, and harassed the customers, just begging for trouble. And trouble appeared. Hearing the commotion, Wyatt burst through the front door to find at least five guns pointing at him. But Holliday, who had been playing cards in the back, quickly got up and put his pistol to Morrison's head, forcing him and his men to disarm. Earp credited Holliday with saving his life that day, and the two became fast friends. While in Dodge City, Earp became acquainted with James and Bat Masterson. There were three Masterson brothers, James, Ed, and Bat. Luke Short, 
and prostitute Maddie Blaylock, who became Earp's common-law wife until 1881. Bartholomew Bat Masterson, having been born to a working-class Irish family in Quebec, was an early arrival to the western frontier, and had quickly distinguished himself as a buffalo hunter, civilian scout, and Indian fighter on the Great Plains. In his late teens, Bat and his brothers Ed and Jim left their family's farm to hunt buffalo on the Great Plains. In July of 1872, Ed and Bat Masterson were hired by a subcontractor named Raymond Ritter to grade a five-mile section of track for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. Ritter skipped out without paying the Masterson brothers all of the wages to which they were entitled. It took Bat nearly a year, but he finally collected his overdue wages from Ritter at gunpoint. On April 15, 1873, Masterson learned that Ritter was due to arrive in Dodge City, Kansas aboard a Santa Fe train and that Ritter was carrying a large roll of cash. When Ritter's train pulled in, Masterson entered the car alone and confronted Ritter and marched him out onto the rear platform of the train, where he forced him to hand over the $300 owed to him, his brother Ed, and a friend named Theodore Raymond. A loud cheer then went up from a large crowd which had witnessed the whole event. Masterson was once again engaged in buffalo hunting on June 27, 1874, when he became an involuntary participant in one of the Wild West's most celebrated Indian fights. A five-day siege by several hundred Comanche, Kiowa, and Cheyenne warriors led by Quanah Parker at a collection of ramshackle buildings in the Texas Panhandle known as Adobe Walls. Masterson was one of the 28 hunters who defended the outpost during the attack. The Comanche suffered the most losses during the battle, though the actual number killed is not known, with reports ranging from a low of 30 to a high of 70. The defenders of adobe walls lost only four men, one of whom shot himself by accident. After being fought to a standstill, Quanah Parker and his followers rode off to fight another day. In August of 1874, Masterson signed on as a U.S. Army scout with Colonel Nelson Miles, who was leading a force from Fort Dodge to pursue Comanche and Apache war parties across the Cherokee Strip and into Texas. The force was eventually engaged to recover four sisters, ranging in age from 9 to 15, who had been captured by a group of Cheyenne dog soldiers. The sisters were part of a family that had been attacked outside of Ellis, Kansas, on September 11, 1874, while migrating to Colorado Territory. Their parents, brother, and two older sisters had been killed and scalped. All four surviving sisters were recovered alive by Miles' force over a period of about six months. Bat Masterson's first gunfight took place on January 24, 1876, in Sweetwater, Texas, later called Mobiti in Wheeler County. He was attacked by a soldier, Corporal Melvin A. King, real name Anthony Cook allegedly because he was with a woman named Molly Brennan, who was accidentally, or not, hit by one of King's bullets and was killed. King died of his wounds. Masterson was shot in the pelvis, but recovered. Masterson soon settled in Dodge City. On June 6, 1877, he tried to prevent the arrest of Robert Gilmore, who was known to the locals as Bobby Gill. Masterson managed to wrap his arms around the girth of the 320-pound city marshal, Lawrence Edward Larry Digger, who we met previously, 
thereby permitting Gill to escape. Masterson was immediately grabbed by friends of Degger and pistol-whipped by the lawman. The following day, Masterson was fined $25 for disturbing the peace. Bobby Gill, the cause of Masterson's fine, was assessed only $5. Masterson swore he would take Degger down a few notches. During July of 1877, Masterson was hired to serve as undersheriff to Sheriff Charlie Bassett. Bassett was prohibited by the Kansas State Constitution from seeking a third consecutive term. So the job was up for grabs. Masterson decided to run for the office. His opponent, as you might have guessed, Big Larry Degger. On November 6, 1877, Bat Masterson was elected county sheriff of Ford County, Kansas, by the narrow margin of three votes. Within a month of Masterson's election, on December 6, 1877, Ed Masterson replaced Degger as city marshal of Dodge, so together the Masterson brothers controlled Dodge City and county police forces. Degger had lost power and was a vindictive man. Behind the scenes, he'd make all the trouble for the Mastersons that he could. On February 1, 1878, thanks to a timely telegram from Wyatt, Sheriff Masterson captured the notorious outlaws previously mentioned Dave Rudabaugh and Ed West, who were wanted for an attempted train robbery. Two more of the train robbers were caught by Bat and Ed on March 15th. The tandem law enforcement effort came to an abrupt end, however, when 25-year-old City Marshal Ed Masterson was shot and killed in the line of duty on April 9, 1878. Ed Masterson was mortally wounded by a cowboy named Jack Wagner, who was unaware that Bat Masterson was in the vicinity. As Ed stumbled away from the scene, Bat responded from across the street, firing on both Wagner and Wagner's trail boss, Alf Walker, who was holding a gun. Wagner died the next day, but Walker was taken back to Texas and recovered. More violence followed on October 4, 1878, when a variety actress named Dora Hand, known professionally as Fanny Keenan, was shot and killed by James Kennedy, son of the wealthy Texas cattleman Mifflin Kennedy. Masterson's posse, which included Wyatt Earp and Bill Tillman, captured Kennedy the following day after Masterson shot him in the left arm and other posse members killed his horse. George Hoyt, spelled in some accounts as Hoy, and other drunken cowboys shot their guns wildly at about 3 a.m. on July 26, 1878, including three shots into Dodge City's Comic Theater, causing comedian Eddie Foy Sr. to throw himself to the stage floor in the middle of his act. No one was injured in that incident. Assistant Marshal Earp and policeman Bat Masterson responded, along with several citizens, and opened fire with their pistols at the fleeing horsemen. The riders crossed the Arkansas River Bridge south of town, but Hoyt fell from his horse, wounded in the arm or leg. Earp later told biographer Stuart Lake that he saw Hoyt through his gun sights illuminated against the morning horizon, and he was the one who fired the fatal shot, which killed him that day. But the Dodge City Times reported that Hoyt developed gangrene and died on August 21st after his wounded leg was amputated. And it gets wilder and wilder as we go forward. Stay tuned next week for part two of Wyatt Earp, The Man and the Myth, as Wyatt leaves Dodge City for Tombstone and becomes involved in a shootout that has been immortalized in dozens of books, movies, and documentaries. 
the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes for our Old West series. And if you really want to take a deep dive into our past Old West episodes, I'm leaving a list of episode titles in the show notes for you, so you can listen and start to connect the dots. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a review for us at Apple Podcast App or, for you Android users, at castbox.fm, so others can discover our show as well. And those episodes I'll be listing? The Wild Bunch, Parts 1 and 2, that was February of 2019. Alfredo Baca, The Man Who Would Not Die, September of 2018. Billy the Kid, Part 1 and 2, September 2018. The Quick and the Dead, Parts 1 and 2, June of 2018. And The Legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine, Parts 1 and 2, December 2017. And Tom Horn, The True Story of a Western Legend, August of 2017. All great Western stories for you Old West fans to catch up on. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We'll be back next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll see you then. Sold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.